0: For behold, the Lord God of hosts is going to remove from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support, the whole supply of bread and the whole supply of water, the mighty man and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of fifty and the honorable man, the counselor and the expert artisan, and the skillful enchanter. And I will make mere lads their princes, and capricious children will rule over them. And the people will be oppressed, each one by another, and each one by his neighbor. The youth will storm against the elder, and the inferior against the honorable. When a man lays hold on, of his brother in his father's house, saying, You have a cloak, you shall be our ruler, and these ruins will be under our, your charge, on that day will he protest, saying, I will not be your healer, for in my house there is neither bread nor cloak. You should not appoint me ruler of the people. For Jerusalem has stumbled, and Judah has fallen, because their speech and their actions are against the Lord to rebel against his glorious presence. The expression of their faces bears witness against them, and they display their sin like Sodom. They do not even conceal it. Woe to them, for they have brought evil on themselves. Say to the righteous that it will go well with them, for they will eat of the fruit of their actions. Woe to the wicked, it will go badly with them. For what he deserves will be done to him. O my people, their oppressors are children, and women rule over them. O my people, those who guide you lead you astray, and confuse the direction of your paths. The Lord arises to contend and stands to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment with the elders and princes of his people. It is you who have devoured the vineyard. The plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord God of hosts. Now this is a very important chapter to understand things that happened in history and to understand our age. And it simply confirms that the trumpet blast that John Knox gave in his lifetime was no idle warning. He said that one of the signs of God's judgment on a culture is when irresponsible men and when women move into place of civil authority you need notice in verse 12 oh my people their oppressors are children and women rule over them in the early parts of this chapter it talks about God removing effective leadership and God replacing that leadership with unreliable leadership uh, and men that cannot be trusted and women and in this the centuries that we're talking about you see a series of, of English and Scottish women who rose to the height of queen who were obviously signs of God's judgment upon his upon his church and one of those women who we began talking about the last Sunday evening we were together Is Queen Elizabeth the first now we've already talked a little bit about her let me uh, remind you since it's been a couple of weeks she reigned from 1558 to 1603 45 years from 1558 to 1603 you remember some things we talked about we showed uh, the, the turmoil that all of Europe was in as she came to the throne we talked about uh, the wars, the religious wars that were sweeping Europe in just a couple generations. Then we also talked about the death of Bloody Mary and the rise of Elizabeth, her half sister to Powers, the Queen of England. We spent a good deal of time talking about Charles V, the Emperor of the Holy Roman Empire, i.e., Germany, and his killing of 30,000 Protestants and how uh, much Charles V's influence in Europe played upon. Things that were going on in England. Then we also talked about, uh, and remember also he was the King of Spain. We also talked about the Huguenots in France, those courageous French Calvinists that had war waged against them for so long by Roman Catholic French government until tens of thousands of them were butchered in just a few days' time in connection with the St. Bartholomew's Massacre. And that's why to this very day there are fewer Calvinists in France than probably any country in Europe. 8,000 Pro- Calvinists died in Paris alone on St. Bartholomew's Day. We saw how that day changed the thinking about, a Protestant thinking about Roman Catholic Church. From that moment on, the Protestants identified Roman Catholicism with a, with bloodthirsty assault. Upon Protestants, and they had good documentation. There was Charles V, Roman Catholic, who killed 30,000. There was the French government who killed 30,000. There was the Spanish Inquisition, etc., etc. All right, now that brings us up to another subject that you need to know about: was what was going on in Europe during the reign of Elizabeth I, and that is the Civil War in the Netherlands. Now we're going to come back to the Netherlands. A little later on and spend at least one whole sunday night on an event that took place in the netherlands called the synod of dort and its impact upon us here so many centuries later but tonight i just want you to know what was going on in the netherlands the netherlands now were holland and belgium and northern germany during the beginning of elizabeth's reign the northern the gospel had gotten into into the netherlands and had uh, converted a large segment of the Northern Provinces of the Netherlands. The Southern Provinces stayed under the power of Roman Catholicism, and the Northern Provinces became under the power of the Reformed faith, despite savage penalties for doing so. Philip II, who was the husband of Bloody Mary, and a Spaniard, Roman Catholic, Uh, as his father wanted to believe that national unity could only be maintained if there was a unity of the peoples in faith in the Roman Catholic Church. So therefore, when these northern provinces left the Roman Catholic family and started an independent republic for all practical purposes, Philip II, who was the king over the Netherlands at the time, Spain had a claim over the Netherlands, Philip II saw their actions as heretical, treasonable, and totally irrational. And so he put in place a council that had the responsibility over these in the Netherlands to brutally suppress Protestantism (coughs) and to reorganize the Dutch Reformed Church along Roman Catholic and Spanish lines. If you know anything about the Dutch people (coughs) in the past, and if you know anything about Reformed people in the past, You know that this attempt by the Spaniard, Philip II, to impose a foreign and Roman Catholic council on these people and to reinstitute the Roman Catholic Church could only lead to one thing. Bloody civil war. So civil war was going on in the Netherlands. But now in the larger struggle, in the big picture, in about 1570... The greatest struggle in the world was not between the Protestants and the Catholics. It was not between the Anglicans and the Puritans. The greatest conflict of the day was between what? Christianity and Islam. That was of dangerous proportions. That it just overshadowed all the other conflicts in Europe. There was a real war going on between the European West, or we might say the Christian West if we use that word loosely, the European West and the Muslim Turks. The Turkish Empire had become a world-conquering power by this time, and it was bent on invading and conquering Christian Europe and wiping out Christianity. For a long time, people stood in fear of the outcome. Nobody was sure about the outcome. The struggle was long, and it was characterized by intense, intense savagery. And it went on for generations. And the outcome as to whether Europe was going to be Christian or Muslim was in doubt by generations of Europeans. The West as always, was weakened by internal conflicts and religious wars. Francis I of France, who was a Roman Catholic, nevertheless didn't get along with Charles V of Germany, who was a Roman Catholic. And they were always at each other's throats in an attempt to get more power and get more wealth. And so Francis I of France made an alliance with the Islamic Turkey sultans, against the rest of, Europe, of Christian Europe. And that policy of an alliance between France and the Muslims continued under several kings of France, and nothing can more plainly indicate the depths of moral squalor produced by the Renaissance than for a professedly Christian king to enter into an alliance with Islamic Muslim sultans who were involved in a brutal destruction of Christianity itself. And Francis I's one goal was to be in a stronger power than Charles V, so as to have more power and more wealth. By the way, what's Francis I famous for? At good for nothing. He had a book dedicated to him. Institutes the Christian Religion by Calvin by 1571 the Muslim Turks controlled everything from Hungary, now get this picture in your mind you've got to have past geography to get this picture in your mind that these Muslim Turks controlled everything from Hungary to the Ukraine to Egypt to Persia to Gibraltar Constantinople, which was a Muslim and Turkish city, was more populous at the time than ten of the largest cities in Spain combined. And these Muslim Turks harassed Christian shipping all through the Mediterranean. And, And these Muslims continually clawed at the coasts of Italy and Spain from their bases in North Africa. Europe was under a real threat. Venus, uh, 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 southern Europe, was weakened tremendously by these Muslims. And then came Cyprus in 1571. And Cyprus fell to the Muslims. Now, Cyprus was a Christian nation. It fell to the Muslims right after Venice. And there was a sea battle that took place that was one of the greatest turning points in all of history. If this battle had turned out another way, you would have been a Muslim. Now, I wonder if you were taught about this battle. I'll give you a hint. It happened October the 7th, 1571. Happened in the eastern Mediterranean Sea. Happened in a bay in Cyprus. The bay is called Lepanto. Lepanto. One of the most important battles and turning points in all of history. And it finally shut the door to the onslaught of the Turkish Muslims into Europe. I want to read to you the story of Lepanto. That's L-E-P-A-N-T-O. And uh, the Bay of Lepanto in Cyprus. I'm reading to you a page out of a great little. This is the best concise history of this whole period we've been talking about now for about 18, 20 Sundays, called the Great Revolution, and it's by Otto Scott, and it's the the bulk of this, and it's a history of this era, and it is really good. But I want to read to you so that you can see you're you're a Christian today and not a Muslim because the, the Muslim Muslim among other reasons, but the Muslim Turks. The Muslim Turks were beaten back at the Bay of Lepanto on Cyprus in October 1571. The great Republic of Venice now had, was almost fallen to the Turks, terribly weakened. Cyprus fell. The papacy, which was very powerful politically as and socially and economically at those times, was uh, had on its throne a pope by the name of Pius V. When he heard about the fall of Cyprus to the Muslims, and and Cyprus now was full of Christians, Pius was enraged. Pius was not an ordinary pope. He was not one that took great delight in vestments and expensive clothes. He spurned rich vestments and lived a severe and austere life. He tried to clean up things, at least bureaucratically in Rome, in that he was against nepotism, favoritism, selling offices. Uh, There were a lot of Roman prostitutes in the city for visitors and tourists as well as priests and bishops. And they were uh, round up and put in the ghettos and not in the main streets. They were put on the back streets where they belonged. He cleansed out the convents, expelled and then did something real anti-Semitic and that is he expelled all the Jews from all papal states. He thought that Christianity's two greatest enemies were heretics, that's you, Protestants and the Turks, and he did everything he could to help Spain keep the Muslims out of Cyprus, all to no avail. Uh, out of Venice, all to no avail, and Cyprus fell. Now here's the story: the Turks conquered Cyprus only after a long struggle. Five thousand Greek and Italian Christians resisted so fiercely that they managed to kill thirty thousand. Muslim assailants, 5,000, killed 30,000. And the only reason this small group of Christians surrendered on Cyprus is because their food ran out. They were starving, and the plague had hit, and people were dying of the plagues. And they surrendered to a Turkish Muslim general by the name of Mustafa Pasha, P-A-S-H-A, Mustafa Pasha, who gave them decent terms of surrender. They weren't severe at all. The Christians came out of their hiding places. Ships were available for their departure so they could leave Cyprus and go back to Europe. But on the very last day as the Christians were leaving, the Christian general, a man by the name of Bragadino, the Christian general Bragadino, visited the Muslim general Mustafa Pasha to tell him goodbye. And the Turkish general just casually asked what guarantees Bragadino could give him that his ships would be returned to him, that he was allowing these Christians to go back to Europe on. Bragadino says, your guarantee and all you need is the word of a Venetian gentleman. Well, now that was a slap in the face. He was at war with uh, with, uh, Venice. And that was a slap in the face to this, to this Islamic general. So the mad Turkish general demanded a hostage. Bragadino, the Christian, wouldn't give him a hostage. He may have been a Christian, but he wasn't the smartest Christian in the world. Bragadino uh, refused to give him a hostage, and so as a result, Mustafa Pasha ordered all the Venetians on the island of Cyprus executed. And the rest of the Christian soldiers were sent to Constantinople as slaves. Ragadino, the Christian general, was treated a little differently. He had his nose and ears cut off, his teeth broken, he was whipped every day, and he was forced to do humiliating labor and to kiss the ground wherever Mustafa Pasha walked. On August 17, 1571, he was flayed alive. In the central square of a city there in Cyprus. His skin was stuffed with straw, and his corpse was dangled from the topmast of Mustafa Pasha's flagship and flaunted along the Cypriot coast. Well, that enraged Philip II of Spain and the Europeans that were there, and so help was sent, and the Turks found out that this help was being sent. And so they got all of their ships together, and the Christians were led by a man named Don John, J-O-H-N, of Austria, the illegitimate half-brother of the king, Philip II, who got all the various Christian ships together. And the two fleets met at sunrise, October the 7th, 1571, at the Bay of Lepanto. The Christians had 208 warships, the Turkish Muslims had 230 warships. This was not your usual naval encounter because there was no movement of ships. The European ships got so close to all the Turkish ships that it was all hand-to-hand combat, and these European forces simply invaded the various Turkish ships. By the end of the day, The Turks were badly defeated. They had 30,000 dead and wounded, 15,000 taken prisoners. The Christians lost 10 ships, 8,000 men killed, 21,000 wounded. This is no little skirmish. And the sea all around the bay was bright red with blood. Cervantes. Cervantes. You know Cervantes? What he write? Don Quixote. Cervantes lost a left hand in that war. And he said it was the greatest and most frightful event of all time. Lepanto was a turning point in history. It ended Europe's fear of the Turkish Muslims. They were scared to death of these Turkish Muslims. They saw they could be defeated. And now that fear ended, and with that fear there was a new resolve. And as one historian said, the Christian victory halted progress toward a future which promised to be very bleak indeed. That stopped the Turkish threat to Europe. The faithful people of God saw God's hand in that event. Only God could save a Europe that was so divided between Protestant and Roman Catholic. Only God's grace could save a Europe that was so confused and so weakened against such a rich and powerful and well-armed foe. And so one of the things that you need to praise God for in your life is the Bay of Lepanto in Cyprus, winning Cyprus back from the Muslim Turks in 1571. Now, let's talk about Elizabeth herself. We've just described now the historical stage onto which stepped Elizabeth I, Elizabeth Tudor. One historian by the name of Williston Walker has, I think, accurately described Elizabeth. He said, of all of Henry's children, Henry VIII, of all of Henry's children, she was the only one who really resembled him in ability, insight, and personal popularity. With a masculine force of character, she combined a curious love of personal adornment inherited from her light minded mother Of real religious feeling, she had none. It's important to understand Elizabeth I because you read about her in history books. You know about the Elizabethan period and what a great era that was. It's important to know some things about her. If you're going to understand Elizabeth and everything she did in her long 45-year reign, you've got to understand her in the light of what happened in her childhood. That made her the woman she was. Now, remember who her father was. He was the arrogant, immoral, tyrant, Henry VIII, King of England. He divorced a wife to whom he had been married for 20 years, Catherine of Aragon, to marry Elizabeth's mother. Of course, Elizabeth wasn't around at the time. Elizabeth's mother, Anne Boleyn, with whom he'd been carrying on an affair. After he married Anne Boleyn, he was convinced she was guilty of adultery. And he had her beheaded along with another one of his later, uh, another of his six wives. After Henry VIII's death and his son Henry VI's death, when Mary Tudor, who was the daughter of Henry VIII and the half-sister of Elizabeth I, came to the throne of England, Bloody Mary, Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn was declared to be unlawful. Because remember who Mary was. Mary was the daughter of that Roman Catholic Catherine Aragon, with, to whom Henry had been married for 20 years, and whom he divorced, Mary Anne Well, when he wanted to become king of, uh, head of the Church of England and Mary Anne they declared his marriage, to, his marriage to Catherine Aragon as invalid, and therefore all of her children illegitimate, i.e. Mary. Well, now that Mary's on the throne, she... Has Parliament declare Henry's marriage to Anne Boleyn illegitimate, restores her mother's marriage to legitimacy, and now that makes Bloody Mary legitimate and Elizabeth illegitimate. Mary had no sooner got to the throne than she had Elizabeth arrested and almost had her tried for treason because she thought she was involved in a rebellion against the crown. Elizabeth, as a young girl, watched Mary's Bloody Mary's decline in popularity and influence. And when you put all that together, everything you see Queen Elizabeth do, understand that she did it motivated by two factors. Now, you're going to laugh when I say this, but it's true. Queen Elizabeth had an all, two life-consuming motives that determined everything she did. She was determined not to lose her head and not to lose her crown. She'd seen her mother executed. She knew the conspiracies that swirled around her for her crown. She later would have to have Mary Stewart executed, her own cousin, the Queen of Scotland. And she was determined, whatever the cost, whatever compromise, however pragmatic she had to be, she wasn't going to lose her head to any chopping block. And she was not going to have anybody take her crown away from her. Now, if you remember those two things about Elizabeth I... You'll understand a great deal about the woman and about her times. She was a very talented lady in many ways. She was very highly and well-educated. She was fluent in Latin and French and Italian. She also could read with familiarity from the Greek New Testament and the various other Greek classics. If you were to show up in her court in a time machine, you would see luxury, opiates, entertainment, art, music, drama, poetry. But if you went behind the scenes to her cabinet uh, meetings, you would see men dominated by her tyrannical, arbitrary will and strident manner. She was a true tyrant. By the way, when she came to the throne, that was the fourth time the English people were ordered by a monarch to change their religious belief in 25 years, 28 years. The fourth time in 28 years the English people were ordered by a head of state to change their religious convictions. says a lot about Anglo-Saxons and the like, doesn't it? Here's some of the first things that she did. By the way, Otto Scott describes her as a woman who combines the methods of Machiavelli with a deep femininity. Two Two of her first actions were these. Number one, as you would expect... She immediately removed every law that questioned her legitimacy. Now, Catherine's illegitimate again. Marriage is illegitimate again. Her mother's okay. She's legitimate. The second thing she did, two acts you need to identify with Elizabeth. One called an act of supremacy and the other called an act of uniformity. The act of supremacy that she passed was a restoring to the English crown supreme headship over the church and the state, AND ABOLISHING ANY FOREIGN INFLUENCE UPON EITHER THE CHURCH OF ENGLAND OR THE STATE OF ENGLAND, THAT IS, ABOLISHING ALL PAPAL INFLUENCE. SHE REINSTATED TO HERSELF WHAT HER DADDY HENRY VIII HAD MADE UP THAT SHE WOULD BE QUOTE THE SUPREME HEAD ON EARTH UNDER CHRIST OF THE CHURCH OF ENGLAND. TO THIS VERY DAY THE HEAD OF THE CHURCH OF ENGLAND IS QUEEN ELIZABETH THE SECOND. THE MONARCHS OF ENGLAND ARE THE HEADS OF THE CHURCH of england and elizabeth was determined to take that title to its full extent and she exercised the authority of that title supreme head and governor of the church without scruple she believed she was the head of the church and she was going to show it she also had passed an act of uniformity this act of uniformity recognized her right and her authority to add any further rites or ceremonies to the church that she judged suitable to the glory of God and the honor of religion. I mean, if you're the head of the church, you get to do that. So if she ever thought there was any new rites or ceremonies or parts of liturgies that the church needed for the honor of God, she gave herself the authority to make everybody worship that way. She had a lot of good qualities, but she was every inch a tutor. And she was determined that she would not yield one jot of her prerogatives as queen over the church and over the state. She was a real despot. And she was determined by sheer force. I want everybody on the back row to listen to me while I'm preaching. She was determined by sheer force to stamp out. Now, this was typical of the Tudors to use the power of the crown to stamp out the convictions and earnestly held beliefs of anybody that disagreed with her. I mean, you can't do it. You just stir up beliefs like that when you use the sword in that manner, and that's what she did. Her oppression of Puritanism caused, caused Puritanism to even to blossom. We need to know something about the legacy, by the way, that Bloody Mary left her sister Elizabeth. Bloody Mary left England in a bloody mess when Elizabeth came to the throne of England. There was massive uh, inflation, currency debasement, crippled commerce, huge government loans at ruinous interest rates burdened the English throne. There were tens of thousands of paupers and beggars that roamed the nation. Bloody Mary had literally allowed the Navy to rot And the army to be uh, ill-fed and ill-paid. French troops had landed in Scotland to help marry guys who was ruling Scotland at the time. And so a threat of invasion loomed England. Things weren't well when Elizabeth came to the throne. Now what kind of religion did she have? We know that Henry VIII started out a Roman Catholic, wanted to marry Anne Boleyn, so changed religions and became Episcopalian. We know after his death, his son, Henry VI, became a staunch Calvinist. We know after his death, Bloody Mary became a staunch Roman Catholic Queen of England. And now we have Elizabeth back on the throne. The Roman Catholic world believed that Mary Stuart, the young Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scotland, was the real legitimate uh, heir of the throne of England because the Roman Catholic world thought Elizabeth was illegitimate. You remember because they like Mary, whose mother was Roman Catholic and all that. And also because Mary Stuart of Scotland was the granddaughter of Henry Seventh, who was the daddy of Henry Eighth. Elizabeth was given an offer by the Pope in which he said, I will recognize your legitimacy as the Queen of England if you make the Church of England a Roman Catholic Church, like your sister did. Well, that was repugnant to the instincts of this sharp, pragmatic woman. She understood things. She knew that because of her father Henry VI's break with Rome, that he had a large Protestant following. He knew that she knew that there were people who loved her brother dearly, Henry the Sixth, and there were a lot of Protestants tied to him, and they had created a strong Protestant base for a Protestant queen, and she didn't want to defend her constituency. She also knew that she didn't have to worry about the Roman Catholics in England because they were not that powerful a force, she thought, and they would not push for civil war if she turned down the Pope. So she turned down the Pope's offer. But she was still shrewd because the whole Roman Catholic world was against this woman. And so the way she kept all these Roman Catholic armies off of her shores was that for a time she pretended to honestly consider various European Catholic royalties' offers of marriage. She kept these guys guessing. And they would come and they would quarter, and she would feign interest in them, flirt and all that, and in so doing very shrewdly kept the papal army's offer back. But... Elizabeth was no Protestant. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Elizabeth <laughs> Elizabeth was no Protestant. She regarded politics as the wearing of an ecclesiastical mask. In other words, if you're going to be involved in church things, it's just a mask to, con, uh, to conceal your political goals. Listen to what Otto Scott quotes her as saying. The Queen feels no great interest in any faith or sect, but that she has no other thought than to keep herself on the throne in whatever ways she can, and by means of that religion which may best serve her purpose. She hated Roman Catholic uh, she hated Calvinism, excuse me. She hated Calvinism for reasons we're going to see later. If she was anything, she was a Roman Catholic at heart. And if it had been possible, I believe she would have returned to the Roman Catholic Church. But politically, it was not feasible. By the way, she kept a crucifix, a little altar with candles, a Roman Catholic altar in her bedroom throughout her career. Some of her major problems, and this is a great story, some of her major problems with, were with her cousin, Mary Stuart, Queen of Scots. We already talked about Mary Stuart. that was one of John Knox's favorites. And uh, Mary Stuart, who was the mother of a king of England, James I, Mary Stuart was a six-foot daughter of a woman named Mary Guise, who was connected with the great French Catholic families that persecuted the French Calvinists. And Mary Guise ruled Scotland while Mary Stuart was a young woman. And she was raised a Roman Catholic. When Mary Stuart was 16 years of age, she married the young prince of France who would later become King Francis II of France. And Mary Stuart, the king of Scotland, was his wife. She was the heir of the English throne through her grandmother, Margaret Tudor, the sister of Henry VIII. The one thing Mary Stuart... Resisted with all her might throughout her whole life was the reformation of the church in Scotland and Parliament led by John Knox. John Knox's goal was to make Scotland the most reformed church and state upon the face of this earth. And she was determined that it would be the most devout Roman Catholic church and nation on the face of this earth. She was also determined that she would someday be Queen of England. And she was supported in that desire by France, Spain, and the Vatican. So she was a real threat to the crown of Elizabeth. Now, you see why I tell you. Elizabeth was determined to keep her head and her crown. And Mary was the big threat because she knew that Mary had a legal claim to the crown after her and that she was backed by the mightiest forces in Europe, France, Spain, and the Vatican. After Mary Stuart's first husband... King Francis II died, she realized she couldn't marry another Roman Catholic as much as she would want to, devout Roman Catholic that she was, because if she did, the Scotch Calvinists, under the influence of John Knox, would have joined with England to kick her out of office. And so, to strengthen her own position, she married somebody that Queen Elizabeth recommended to her. Queen Elizabeth sent to marry a man by the name of Henry Stuart, Known in history books as Lord Darnley, D A R N L E Y, Henry Stuart was his name, Lord Darnley. Elizabeth sent her, because she thought she controlled Darnley, she sent him to be the suitor of Mary Stuart. He also was in line for the throne of England after Mary Stuart. Elizabeth had the first claim, Mary Stuart had the second claim. Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart, had the third claim to the throne of Europe. Elizabeth was determined to keep her crown. Lord Darnley, Henry Stuart, married Mary, and he became Henry, King Henry of Scotland. Most people, if you read about if you hear, talk about King Henry of Scotland, they don't even know who you're talking about because he's known in the history books as Lord Darnley. Darnley and his family were sympathetic with Roman Catholic goals and not with the Protestantism of England. The reason Mary Stuart wanted to marry Darnley, this powerful man sent to her by Elizabeth with Roman Catholic sympathies, was because she hoped to unite England and Scotland back into the Roman Catholic Church. And when Queen Elizabeth realized how Mary was turning her own schemes upside down, Elizabeth sent Darnley up there to protect herself. Now she realizes Mary, who was quite a woman, was turning the whole thing around in an attempt to take Elizabeth's throne for herself and unite Scotland and England back into Roman Catholicism. When she realized that, it infuriated her and it even alienated one of the most important men in Scotland, the chief advisor of Mary Stuart, a godly great and great man by the name of James Stuart. Not the movie star, Jimmy. Not the perverted King of England. Spells his name, last name different, but James Stewart. He's known in history as the Earl of Moray. The Earl of Moray. James Stewart was John Calvin's right hand man. He was the man that underwrote a lot of things that John John Calvin, did I say John Calvin? He underwrote a lot of things John Knox did. And was a great defender and supporter of John Knox. And when he realized what Mary Stewart, that she wasn't the helpless victim, that all these great Reformed nobles thought she was but that she was a shrewd and powerful woman herself, then her marriage to Darnley alienated him because he had, one, had nothing to do with taking Scotland back under the realm of the Pope. And so when Mary Stewart, the Queen of Scots, married Lord Darnley, Henry, Henry Stewart, a man of Roman Catholic sympathies from England, the Calvinists in Scotland saw that as a declaration of war on the Calvinist agenda. This woman is really serious about stamping out the Reformed faith in Scotland. And so James Stewart and these other Calvinist nobles finally woke up. They tried to stage a rebellion when they realized how far things had gone. But Mary, six-foot Mary, smart, personally led her own army against them, a Roman Catholic army. And this army, led by Mary Stuart herself, drove the reformed James Stuart and all of his companion and army into England in fear. She put down the Calvinist rebellion. Elizabeth was enraged again. And so Elizabeth plotted the assassination of her cousin, Mary Stuart. And she threatened to send her own army into Scotland to stop Mary and her designs on the English throne. But Elizabeth's wise counselor, a man by the name of William Cecil, known in history as Lord Burley, counseled Patience, and so she backed off. Now, remember who William Cecil's family is. William Cecil was the chief advisor to Elizabeth I for about 40 years and was a sympathizer of the Calvinists. And his family own Biltmore Mansion in Asheville. Lord Darnley, King Henry of Scotland, Mary Stuart's husband, was worthless. He was immoral, arrogant, jealous, dissolute, with syphilis, as you can imagine. In blind jealousy, he accused Mary, Queen of Scots, his own wife, of adultery with her private Italian secretary, David Rizzio, R-I-Z-Z-I-O. And when Mary of Scots became pregnant with the future James VI of Scotland and James I of England, Darnley, her own husband, said David Rizzio was the father of the man who would be the king of England. We don't know who's the father. So on March the 9th, 1566, Lord Darnley, Mary's husband, joined in a conspiracy to murder Rizzio. And they brutally murdered the man whom Darnley thought was his wife's lover. March the 9th. June the 5th, 15th, a couple months later. June the 5th. 15th, Mary Stuart gave birth to a son. Presumably Darnley's. Darnley thought was Rizzio's, but his name was James Charles Stuart. The news of this child born to Mary Stuart shocked the unmarried and childless Elizabeth. Now there was a legal male heir to the throne of England and Scotland. Parliament urged, begged Elizabeth to marry. You got to marry somebody and have a baby. We got to have our own legitimate heir here. She faithfully and enthusiastically and shrewdly promised Parliament that she would marry and that she would have a child. And then she immediately forbade any further discussion of the topic in Parliament. And so, there in the early months of this baby's life, the crown of England and Scotland was shaken. And then Mary Stuart herself slid into evil. Mary Stuart was sick of her sickly, immoral, loud mouthed husband. She'd had all she could take of Darnley. And besides that, she'd been secretly in love with the great swashbuckler. I love swashbuckling. She was secretly in love with the great swashbuckler, Earl of Bothwell. Now, if you want to see a historical black-and-white old movie presentation of this romance, I recommend it for that. It, it's called uh, Mary of Scotland, starring Catherine Hepburn. It makes Mary of Sco- uh, Scotland out to be a, a hero, which she wasn't. It makes John Knox out to be a crazy fool, which he wasn't. It makes the godly James Stewart out to be a murderer, which he wasn't. But it does have a great romance about Mary Stuart. <laughs> about Mary Stuart and the Earl of Bothwell. Uh, by, and uh, so she has all these secret li- liaisons with Bothwell while she's married to Darnley. John Knox found out about it. So, what do you reckon John Knox did? Publicly, in sermons. Call the Queen of Scotland, to use his words, not mine. Call the Queen of Scotland a whore. Publicly now in sermons. Back when kings and queens cut your head off for less. And so in October, 1567, a year later, Bothwell and Mary conspired and arranged the assassination of King Henry of Scotland, Lord Darnley. And here's what happened. Mary seduced her husband, Darnley, to Edinburgh with false promises of love. Now, he was just eaten up with syphilis. His mind was almost gone. She seduced him. To Edinburgh with false promises of love, and he was all excited, so he showed up at the house where they were supposed to meet. She showed there for a, for a while and talked to him and left. And coincidentally, no sooner had she left than the house blew up. <laughs> it was destroyed by I don't know how much dynamite. And so when they came, a few minutes later actually, to see what had gone on, there was the house in shambles and King Henry, Lord Darnley, laying on the ground outside the house, presumably blown out the window till they noticed there wasn't a scratch on him and he'd been suffocated to death, murdered. They realized the queen at that point tried to blame, guess who, for the murder of the king of Scotland. James Stewart, the great Calvinist noble, her own half-brother, by the way. James, but, the, but it couldn't stick. All the evidence pointed toward Mary Stewart and Bothwell. So a mock trial took place. Said, I'm going to show you, the Queen said, in effect, I'm going to show you, I'm innocent, we're going to have a public trial on television. <laughs> so they have a public trial... The judges and attorneys and juries, etc., carefully chosen, and wouldn't you know it, Bothwell and the Queen were both acquitted and found innocent. And to make up for the great damage to their reputation, the Scottish Parliament then gave Bothwell a castle and various other lands and privileges and possessions. He soon divorced his wife. AND MARRIED MARY STEWART. THIS NEWS DISGUSTED THE CATHOLICS AND THE PROTESTANTS. IT DISGUSTED THE CATHOLICS BECAUSE DARNLEY WASN'T A SCOTCH CATHOLIC uh, BECAUSE BOTHWELL WASN'T A CATHOLIC. IT DISGUSTED THE PROTESTANTS BECAUSE THEY KNEW THAT BOTHWELL AND MARY WERE BOTH MURDERERS. AND SO WHAT DO YOU THINK JOHN KNOX DID? He preached a powerful sermon saying that the marriage of Bothwell and Mary was abominable in the sight of God. Well, that's all Bothwell could take now because now he was uh, married to the queen and so Knox was hauled in to the queen's council. I want you to get impressed with John Knox. John Knox is hauled in. And he confronts the fierce Bothwell. I mean, Bothwell is a real fighter and a real swordsman. And John Knox faces Bothwell, whom he just charged publicly with adultery, complicity in murder, and rape. Because you see the way Darnley, I mean the way Bothwell set all this up, he acted like he abducted Mary. Mary let herself be abducted by Bothwell to some Hidden place, but it was all a part of their plan. So Knox had just accused him of murder, adultery, and rape to his face right there in that room. Bothwell, the swashbuckler, was looking at him, and after Knox finished accusing him of all of these capital crimes, Knox just turned around and walked out of the room. And Bothwell did absolutely nothing to him. Bothwell was married to Mary Stuart in May 1567 in a reformed ceremony. Now that was a that was politically astute, don't you think? Well now what was the what happened actually it was stupid. What happened? Now Mary Stuart the great catholic is a lost soul in roman catholic eyes. She's not only married a protestant, she married a protestant in the protestant ceremony. The Catholic clergy left her, the Calvinist clergy was convinced she was guilty of murder, and they wanted her deposed, and the people were fed up with her and savagely turned against her. John Knox went on preaching, demanding that Queen Mary stand trial for murder and adultery. I mean, that was unheard of. Calling for the Queen of Scotland to stand trial for adultery and for murder, both of which were capital crimes. He convinced other Calvinist preachers and congregations to side with him, and this scared Elizabeth to death. Now we're back to England. When she heard the clamor in Scotland from these powerful preachers calling for the trial of the queen for murder and adultery, it scared her to death. Why did she want to keep her head and her crown above everything else? Why did it scare her? Because the Tudors and the Stuarts. Henry Tudor and his children, James, Stuart, and all them, and Elizabeth being a Tudor, believed not only that monarchs were above the law, but that monarchs were the law. And therefore, they could not be tried by any court. See, she had remembered in horror the trial and execution of her own mother, Anne Boleyn. And so she sent word to Scotland. She said, in essence, if anybody harms my cousin Mary, whom she'd already made plots to assassinate herself. She said, if anybody tries to harm my cousin Mary, I will send an English army into Scotland and punish everybody involved. And the response was chilling. Because these old Scots nobles, if one English soldier crossed the border, Mary Stuart's white throat would be slit. And so the conspiracies continue. Meanwhile, Mary Stuart was forced to abdicate, she had to step down from the Queen of Scotland. A group of Calvinist nobles, including John Knox, conducted a makeshift coronation of her young baby, James VI of Scotland. Mary Stewart escaped, and she found refuge with the Hamilton family. And within a week, she had gathered together 6,000 Catholics, armed Catholics, to support her and to protect her. These 6,000 Catholics out to protect Mary faced again... James Stewart. I remember James Stewart tried to rebel, lead a a, a, a Calvinistic rebellion, when Mary married Darnley, because they thought that there was going to be the undoing of the Protestant Reformation, and she overwhelmed that rebellion. Well, now courageous and godly James Stewart is back. She has a force of 6,000 troops. Godly James Stewart now and his disciplined army confront her. And this time, Mary's army melts away. And the Calvinist forces win the day. Mary flees Scotland altogether and after a wild ride of three nights crosses over into England and and throws herself upon the mercy of her cousin and of her rival, Queen Elizabeth. Now, when Mary left Scotland, Calvinism began to increase again. It began to prosper with her threats out of the way. Guess who now was the acting king of England, the the uh, the regent of England. He wasn't uh, of Scotland. He wasn't really the king, but he was the one who ruled as king. He was the regent now. M- Mary Stuart was out of the picture. The young little baby James the Sixth, who became James the First of Scotland, had been crowned king, and there was an adult male who ruled Scotland in his name. Guess who it was. James Stewart, the godly Calvinist. While he was acting as king of Scotland, he called Scotland, the Scottish Parliament together and had Parliament declare that the Reformed faith is the religion of Scotland. Of course, you can imagine how that excited John Knox and the other Reformed preachers. Under the leadership of godly James Stewart and the Scottish Parliament, Roman Catholicism was outlawed in Scotland. Roman Catholics were barred from holding office. Now, remember, this wasn't some kind of sectarian, bigoted action. These were the people who were responsible for killing, driving into exile, putting into prison unjustly. The people committed to the Reformed faith. And under James Stuart's influence and the Parliament under his influence, it was determined that any future ruler of Scotland was to swear to uphold the Reformed doctrine. By the way, do you know to this day, how many of you saw the coronation of Elizabeth II? I remember seeing it. To this day, it made such an impact on me. And I, I didn't—I wasn't a Calvinist back then. But I can remember when the moderator of the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland came to Elizabeth II and had her vow publicly before God and man in this coronation service Do you promise to uphold and defend the reformed faith of the Church of Scotland? She said, I do. So you see the impact of James Stewart, Earl of Moray. All the monies and uh, properties of the Roman Catholic Church now were put in the hands of the reformed churches. The Scottish Parliament had, to use an old phrase, cross the Rubicon. It was too late to turn back now. The Scottish Parliament now, not just John Knox, but the Scottish Parliament under James Stewart's leadership charged Queen Mary Stewart and Earl of Bothwell with conspiracy to murder the King of Scotland. All of this was following the teaching of John Knox that, wa- that had emphasized that the people have a right to to put a ruling prince on trial if he's guilty of treason. Well, now Mary was in... And we're going to finish there because I want to get through with Mary. Mary was now in England. She fled Scotland. Now the Reformed faith was the religion of the land. James Stewart was in control of Scotland. Calvinism was prospering. Mary was in England in a castle... And she was filling all her days with plots against Elizabeth. She's in England. Maybe she's closer to the crown. So she would conspire with everybody. She would conspire with Scottish nobles, Roman Catholic, English nobles, the Pope, France, all kinds of people. To try to figure out some way, since she was in England, that she could take, overturn Elizabeth and take the throne for herself. She started plot after plot. She instigated a plot with the Roman Catholic Hamilton family to murder the great James Stewart. So in 1570, when he was 35 years old, he was assassinated. And when James Stewart was assassinated, Scotland was plunged into civil war. James Stewart's death left Knox vulnerable. No supporter. No powerful protector. And so the preacher, the old preacher, John Knox, was harassed on all sides, I believe, as a result of the news of James Stewart's death, 1570, Knox suffered a stroke from which he never fully recovered. But keep in mind what John Knox did and what he accomplished in his lifetime. And see if you know anybody else that did all this. Knox had humbled a reigning monarch. He brought down an idolatrous queen. He toppled a government that was not committed to the Reformed faith. He ousted the ruling hierarchy of the church in the state of Scotland. He converted through his preaching and his followers a whole nation. And he could regard toward the close of his life a landscape transformed by his efforts. Scotland's never been the same because of John Knox. Mary continued her plotting. She knew that one assassination could bring down the whole English government and put her on the throne of England. And with her in England and these plots swirling around, that always had the prospect of a threatened civil war because Mary made no secret of her intention. I want the English throne. France is willing to help me. Spain's willing to help me. The Vatican's willing to help me. I'm going to become Queen of England and I am going to restore Roman Catholicism to this Protestant nation. The Pope assisted her. Because during all these plots and schemes, the Pope sent out a papal bull excommunicating Queen Elizabeth from the Roman Catholic Church and telling all Roman Catholic citizens of England, because she's excommunicated, you no longer have to obey anything that she tells you, i.e. trying to foment revolution and civil war on one occasion. Some powerful nobles from northern England led a Catholic uprising against Elizabeth and in Mary's behalf with an army of thousands of Englishmen and Scotsmen. And the purpose of this army of thousands was to rescue Mary and to go to London and crown her the Queen of England and Scotland. Mary Stuart was immediately transferred to tighter security and custody. The powerful nobles from northern England wavered and waffled and their armies soon scattered and the Catholic attempt to, to rescue Mary and to overturn e- uh, Elizabeth fell to the ground. You could imagine what this did to Elizabeth. What's her goal in life? To keep her head in the crown. So what did she do when she found out about all this and Mary's conniving and these thousands of Roman Catholic soldiers? She ordered... A lot of executions. And those that were executed, she required that their bodies be held up in public and to remain there until they fell to pieces and decomposed where they hung. Six hundred people were executed and left hanging on scaffolds all over. England, as proof of Elizabeth's fear and of her rage. Well, when one other plot was discovered by Elizabeth, by Mary Stuart, her dear friend William Cecil decided to move to end the threat of Mary forever. So for the first time, Queen Mary of Scotland was placed on trial before the English nobility for treason and attempted murder of the Queen of England. Elizabeth, who would have been glad to get rid of her dear cousin Mary, nevertheless knew what was going on. here was a head of state being tried by people beneath her, and her life was threatened. And Elizabeth, who believed in the divine right of the monarchy, believed that the heads of state were above the law, were the law themselves. And so she tried to get Mary off the hook and stop the trial. Not because she loved Mary, she loved herself. Parliament intervened and found Mary of uh, Scotland guilty of treason, sentenced her to death, and then pressured, Parliament, pressured the Queen of England to sign a death warrant of Mary Stuart, the Queen of Scots, On February the 7th, 1587, and Mary Stuart's head was chopped off February the 12th, 1587. That left the young James VI of Scotland, the son of Mary Stuart, and either Darnley or Rizzio, the de facto heir of the throne of England. And this beheading of Mary Stuart put the entire Catholic world into convulsions. We'll continue next week about the Spanish Armada. Let us pray. We thank you, Lord, for the way we see your hand in history. Help us to learn to look at history that way as the outworking of your plan. We thank you for the way you protected your church and purified her during these days. For Christ's sake, amen.